All right, if you want to get your Bibles out a while, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 again today. We just uh, started last week, uh, started a new sermon series called The Doctor's Cure as we're uh, reading through Luke and uh, looking at the many things about Jesus' life and his teachings there. Uh, today, uh, we start a journey toward Christmas, uh, toward Bethlehem. And it's going to be, it's kind of neat how it worked out with the uh, sermon series. Now, this is in many ways God's inaugural step toward his long-range plan to kill sin and uh, rescue sinners. If you know the Genesis story in Genesis chapter 3, if Adam and Eve sinned, they rebelled against God. And, uh, and surprisingly, God, after that happened, didn't say, oh my goodness, what has what has happened now? Where do we go from here? I don't know what to do next. In fact, in that very same chapter where it's recorded Adam and Eve's sin, uh, God goes on to say to these two rebels, um, I'm going to send in the future, I'm going to send a man-child to you, and he is going to crush the tempter's head who tricked you. But there's something today that we, or someone we want to talk about today uh, before we get to Jesus. Next week, we'll be talking about the coming of the King of Kings. Today, we're talking about the coming of the Herald, John the Baptist, who comes before Jesus. Now, there are a lot of similarities between him and Jesus. He, he was related to, to Jesus. Um, he was uh, about the same age, born several months before Jesus. And uh, he had a supernatural birth, uh, not the same kind as Jesus, but uh, nonetheless, very sim- a lot of similarities between the two. And John came as uh, something of an announcer about the Christ, but he was more than that. He came something as a warm-up act for Jesus, but he was more than that. He was a preacher, he was a prophet, but he was more than that as well. Now, if you're going to make a, a road... Um, You're going to go out in some unimproved area and make a road. There's a number of things you have to do before you actually make the road and put the top asphalt surface down. Uh, You're going to have to bump off, lop off the hills or the bumps. You're going to have to bring in fill to put in the valleys and the ditches. And then if you're going to make a curved road, you know, the, the bulldozers and the earth movers and the graders and the excavators, all that big equipment is going to have to move the soil underneath, move the ground underneath. Uh, if you make that curved road, you have to bank the bed a bit so the cars can go around it easily. You want to make sure that the curve moves smoothly and it's not jerky. And then you finally bring in the top machine that does the top surfacing of the asphalt after all of that background work has been done. And if you look at the prophecies about John the Baptist in the Old Testament, that's exactly how the prophets depicted John's work. He's going to come and he's going to get the people ready for when Jesus comes. Let me just make a side note here before we dive into this. Um, it's not unusual for Christians to look at John the Baptist and go, um, he, he, he doesn't matter to us. Essentially, he's before Jesus, so essentially he's Old Testament, doesn't matter. But you think about this. If, if John came to prepare for Jesus, there's a, there's a connection there that is more than he was just an Old Testament prophet. 
And, and I hope in the weeks ahead, we're going to get back to John in John chapter 3, and then, in, or, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3, and then uh, chapter 7 as well. I hope that you come to see that John's ministry and what he called the people to is as vital and urgent and important for us today as it was in the days before Jesus um, appeared on the scene and began his ministry, and as it was um, even when Jesus was dying and, and being raised from the dead. In other words, that John has some important connection with the gospel that maybe, just maybe, we miss. But we'll get into that more a bit later. So John's work when he came was to straighten out people's crooked ways and to fill in their moral values. So if you turn with me to Luke chapter 1, let me uh, pray for us, and then we're going to jump in at verse, at verse 5. Father, um, unless the Spirit uh, shows up this morning, uh, this is all going to be for naught. It has no meaning, it has no point, it has no impact. And so I am desperate for your Spirit to be uh, our teacher, um, our inspirer, um, the one who digs deep in our own souls this morning. I pray that we'd not just leave with a little bit more information, but that we would leave um, with a little bit greater uh, delight in and understanding of you, your majesty, your glory, your plan, uh, your power. And as we look back through um, people like John, back through the history um, of those who have served you, uh, we're thankful for those who have laid it all on the line who have been willing to say no to the world's delights and pleasures in order to be able to say yes to you. Um, at times, they, these kind of people can feel like that sermon I read this week, uh, the prophet nobody likes. Um, they can seem like their, their commitment to you is so far beyond ours that we don't really don't have anything in common. And yet we all have different callings. My prayer is that we would not look at somebody like John and say, well, you, you're just radically different than me. I'm not like that. I, don't, I could never be like that, nor would God ever call me to be like that. And I just pray for an openness this morning to, for you to say to any one of us what you want to say and for us not to put our hands up and object. We're so grateful for our Savior. John came to point toward and pray that this day might yet again draw us um, into greater and greater delight at what he has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, we're going to read a lot of chapter 1 this morning, but not all of it. We'll be coming back to some of these verses next week. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. Now, let me just stop there. First of all, um, Luke is profiling this couple in their Jewishness and also in their um, moral, uh, moral um, 
perfections before the Lord. In other words, he's speaking about their faith. And I find it interesting how diligent and scrupulous they are in obeying the Lord. And, they, and then Luke follows that description up with this line, they couldn't have any children. Now, some people in this church have known the frustration, aggravation, and anger, and sometimes bitterness about not being able to have a child. But none, none of us in this age know what it would be like to be a Jewish woman 2,000 years ago who could not have a child. There's a reason that Elizabeth calls it in verse 25 later, a disgrace. See, Jewish people had a great understanding of God's sovereignty, technically, but not globally. And what I mean by that is they understood that God planned everything and ordained everything. What they didn't understand was how someone could have bad things happen to them, God be sovereign, and it not be their fault. If you were here in the spring when we talked about Job. Job ran into this. The worst possible things were happening to him, and everybody concluded, therefore, you must be sinning against God. You want to solve your problems? You want your bad stuff to go away? Repent, and God will take care of it. And Job's like, no, I, I, I haven't done anything. There, I keep short accounts with God. There's nothing that I have not dealt with. And so a woman who couldn't bear a child, first of all, they didn't have a uh, a medical, gynecological, biological understanding of it. it could be Zachariah's fault. So the woman bore all of the responsibility, both physically and morally. And so if you'd walk down the street, people would turn around and look at you knowing you couldn't have any children and wonder in their minds, what's wrong with her? What isn't she doing right? And yet it's intriguing, despite all of that shame and disgrace and finger-pointing, conversation, in spite of the fact that God has not allowed her to have a child, they were both faithful, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. Is that how it goes for you and I when things don't go right? Let's keep reading. One day... Zechariah was serving God in the temple for his order was on duty that week. As with the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. Now, this was a, a, a privileged duty of priests. There were more um, priests than there were weeks in the year, and so some priests even never, never got to do this in their lifetime. It was a great honor to do this to go in in the morning and the evening for a week and add more incense to the fire. This altar of incense was placed right in front of the curtain that separated the holy place in the temple from the most holy place. Behind the curtain was where at one time the Ark of the Covenant was, and in it uh, the two uh, tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments on, uh, Aaron's rod that had budded, and a jar of manna. And this was, where, this was the most holy place where God showed up once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so this was a privilege to be that close to the Holy of Holies. And, and the priest would go in there and he would pray for Israel as he offered the incense. The people outside uh, the room are praying for Israel as he offers up the incense. And then something amazing happens. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. 
Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. And then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God, and it was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Uh, before we go on, you think about how um, godly this old couple, we don't know how old they were. My guess is they were probably uh, upwards of their 60s or 70s at least, well beyond childbearing years. By the way, ladies, doesn't that sound like fun, having a child at this age? so faithful to the Lord and yet when Zechariah has one seemingly small uh, uh, moment of doubt <laughs> this is how God treats him now it says in the book of Hebrews without faith it is impossible to please God and I'm understanding that that's what's taking place here Zechariah doubted. Gabriel imposed a punishment from God nine months where you can't speak. And the word that's used here may well imply you can't hear either. In fact, there's something that takes place later on we're going to read that suggests that was the case. So for nine months, you can't speak or hear. Are you kidding me? You got this couple that is so faithful to you and you are going to deal with something like that in such a stern, fierce way? Brothers and sisters, I worry that we have so um, dismantled God and who he really is and what he's really like that I wonder if we'll recognize him when we see him face to face. It's true that God is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger. It is also true that our God is a consuming fire. And I think pictures like this should not be too quickly dismissed. And we say, you know, my, my indiscretions, my little sins day in and day out, that's not that big a deal. God has lavished grace on us. It's true he has. In fact, the reality that we are not incinerated in a moment is evidence of great grace toward us. But we should not assume that because God is a gracious and a merciful God, that he is um, winks at our sins, at our rebellion, 
and yes, even at our lack of faith. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. <clears throat> when he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. And then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace at having no children. Now, we want to uh, kind of sketch out in a big picture God's overarching plan this morning. I'm calling the Heavenly Father's plan and how John fits into that. And then talk briefly about this earthly father, Zechariah, and his preoccupation. Uh, the main point is on John's future ministry of calling people to repent. But even though that's kind of the main point, we're not going to touch on it much. We're going to let that for when we uh, get uh, to chapter 3. Let's talk briefly about the Heavenly Father's plan. God's plan is and was, has been, to redeem a people for himself. The message from Genesis uh, to Revelation is that God is in the business of redeeming, uh, buying back a people for himself. He is... And he began that essentially by selecting Israel. Three points under this, redeeming people for himself. Uh, one, selecting Israel. And when God selected Israel, he did it much like um, a man might try to uh, choose a wife. And it's not by accident that we see throughout the scriptures that God is continually um, going back to this imagery of a husband and wife is much like God and his people. And so he says in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, um, when he's drawing up this or reconfirming the covenant that he made with Abraham, he says this to Moses uh, about the children of Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so much language through the Old Testament is shaped by the marriage covenant. And it is a covenant. We talked earlier this spring in our marriage series that it's not a contract. Uh, a contract is something you make with someone that's only binding as long as both of you do your part. If one person fails in any way in that part, the other party is free to, to leave and to be free of the contract. A covenant is a totally different animal. And so God made a covenant with his people, just like he calls a husband and a wife to make a covenant with each other. You make vows that are, are com com you're committed to pretty much no matter what happens. And so God was in a covenant relationship with people, and it's a good thing he was for that, for their part, because they were constantly blowing it. And God speaks about the broken relationship between him, his, him and his people throughout the Old Testament in terms uh, of adultery. In fact, he spends an entire book, the book of Hosea, uh, depicting himself as a jilted husband betrayed by a, by a wife who's very promiscuous. Adultery, 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 and yet he woos her just like he calls the prophet Hosea to woo his rebellious wife back to him. It's the reason that we get to Ephesians chapter 5 and we see this picture of a love affair between Jesus and his bride, the church, being uh, portrayed as a human marriage relationship. So God selected Israel really as his covenant wife and anticipated that they, she would be faithful to him. 
He also expected that she would be a light to the nations. Uh, Psalm chapter 96, verse 3. And we've talked before about this, how, how abysm, abysmally Israel failed at this. He says, publish God's glorious deeds among the nations. Tell everyone about the amazing things he does. Now, remember, this is kind of major step one in God's plan to redeem a people for himself. He chooses Israel as his covenant people, and they're essentially going to be missionaries to the rest of the world. They're going to be light to the nations. But they weren't. In fact, when the neighboring nations looked at Israel, most of the time throughout much of the Old Testament history anyway, they'd simply see a mirror picture of themselves. Rebelling against God, worshiping the Baals, worshiping the Chemoshes, worshiping the Ashtaroths, all of these foreign gods, it was often much more true that the neighbors of Israel were light, dark light, to Israel than Israel ever was light to their neighbors. Bismally failed at being that. So this, but this was still the main initial piece that God, uh, as he sets out to redeem a people for himself, he calls or selects Israel. The second big piece is now the sending of the Messiah. So we have uh, uh, really a couple thousand years between when God chose Israel and when now he's going to send the Messiah. Uh, back at Luke, let me take you to chapter 4, verse 18. <clears throat> this is... Um, Right after Jesus is tempted, he's about to begin his public ministry. He goes back home to Nazareth, to his hometown, goes back to his home church. And in those days, if you were a stranger in a church or somebody like Jesus, a favorite son of your community, you were given the opportunity to address the gathered congregation. And so Jesus stood up. He opened the scroll of Isaiah he turned to chapter 61, although there were no chapters back then, and he read the first two verses, and this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has appointed me, anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor had come. And then he takes the Bible, and he rolls it back up, and he looks around, pregnant pause and then he says this is fulfilled today in your hearing and what he was saying was and the people that were before him all understood that Isaiah 61 was speaking about a day is coming when God is going to deliver Israel with a Messiah he is saying to that congregation in his hometown I am the Messiah Things didn't really go well with that. <laughs> I tried to kill him that day because of who he claimed to be, Messiah. Now, I want to take you back to Luke 1 with this in mind and look at verse 13. Do you remember when Zechariah walked into, uh, he walks into the uh, holy place and he's offering the incense, the angel shows up. And he says at the beginning of verse 13, your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, will, um, your wife Elizabeth will give you a son and you are to name him John. Now the automatic 
understanding of the way things are laid out here is God has heard your prayer for a son. But think about it. Zachariah didn't even believe that was possible. When the angel said he's going to get a son, he's like, are you sure? And this would not have been typical of a priest to go in and do that ceremony uh, in the temple and have it be focused on their personal needs. A large group of Israelites outside the room praying. He's inside as a priest representing the people before God. That was his job. What was he praying about? He was praying about, if, at least if the end of the chapter makes any sense, he was praying about the need of Israel. He was praying about the, the longing of Israel to have God come and provide a rescuer and provide a deliverer for them. Verses 68. Praise the Lord, that's Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, giving a prophecy. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. That's what Zechariah was praying about. That's what the people outside the room were praying about. They were praying for Israel to be delivered. And the only way they knew that Israel was ever going to be delivered was through the sending of the chosen one. Big picture, again, big picture framework of God's plan, selecting Israel, sending a Messiah, and after Jesus lives, teaches, dies, rises from the dead, ascends back into heaven, now there's a great, big, new peace. And that is that God is seeking the world he really had this in mind with Israel, but Israel failed to come through for him. But now, all of that's going to change. Look back at the end of Luke, Luke chapter 24. Uh, by the way, if you have an, one of my outlines, I, I have a mistake there. It says John chapter 24. It's uh, Luke, Luke 24, verse 47. This is Jesus, <clears throat> the final thing that Luke... Um, records him saying before he is ascended back into heaven. And Jesus says, It's also written that this message, meaning the gospel, would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. To all the nations. He continues, There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. Now this was such a problem that even Jesus' disciples were still unclear on this. For them to imagine that after Jesus goes back to heaven, that they're expected to go places like uh, Egypt and Mozambique and Afghanistan and Romania and Italy and Spain and China was totally off their radar. And Jesus himself said on a number of occasions, uh, I have come to the lost sheep of Israel. That's my purpose. That's why I'm here even though he sometimes ministered to Gentiles. In fact, Luke records more of those incidents than any of the other gospel writers because Luke himself was a Gentile and wanted to profile how Jesus was not against Gentiles. It's just that he had a focus while he was here on earth. But now Jesus is saying, now the focus is going to change. In fact, God will in some ways, as we get to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9, it shows us how God finally says to Israel, fine, if you're going to reject me i've got lots of people around the world who won't 
sending the Messiah, seeking the world. And who's going to prepare the people for this grand entrance of the Messiah? John. And John is God's Elijah. Let me take you, this is, this is kind of a cool thing. Matthew chapter 11. Uh, you're going to see in a number of places in the scripture a reference to Elijah, even though Elijah was not here on earth anymore. And yet people think he's coming back. There's a reason for that. Elijah is one of only two people in the Bible ever uh, mentioned that didn't die. One was Enoch, simply taken up to heaven. The other was Elijah. Elisha watched him go up to heaven in a chariot of fire. He was here uh, on the bank of the river, and all of a sudden, boom, he was gone. And so with this never-dying piece of his biography, people believed that he was going to come back again. And in fact, the prophets spoke about an Elijah coming back. Here's what Jesus understands that to be. Matthew 11, verse 14, he is talking in these verses about John the Baptist. And he says about him in verse 14, and if you are willing to accept what I say, he is Elijah, the one the prophets said would come. He is Elijah, the one the prophets said would come. Now in a minute, I'm going to take you to an Old Testament prophecy about Elijah, about John the Baptist. Uh, but let me say this, and this is where we're going to go when we get to Luke 3. The primary mission of of John in preparing the people for Jesus' coming was to call those people to repentance. The primary call that John had in preparing people for the coming Messiah, for Jesus, was to call them to repent. And make no mistake about it, that is still a legitimate, a much-needed call today in the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I had a missionary one time that uh, we support who was putting together some resource materials for his mission field, and he sent them to me and some others for evaluation and so forth, and I, and I sent it back to him, and I said, Brother, <laughs> you're preparing gospel materials, and you never once mentioned repentance. Not once. And uh, I got a call from him like, I, I can't believe I, I didn't have it in there. And yet we have a gospel in many quarters today of the church where repentance isn't discussed. It's simply come to Jesus, accept Jesus. And yet the call of John to, to repent, to turn, um, is part and par parcel of the gospel. Go back here again to Luke chapter 1. Look at verses, uh, let me see, verse 16. And he will turn, this is the angel still speaking to Zechariah about who his son's going to be. He will turn, note that word, he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. He will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Now that word is not repentance, but it is a kissing cousin to the word repentance. It is used in a number of times in the New Testament for repentance, as a synonym for repentance. Repentance has two basic ideas to it. One is a thinking idea, the other one is a doing idea. 
It means on the one hand to change my mind about something, specifically change my mind about my love affair with sin, and then to do something as a result. And the doing is to turn and go the other direction. Sin's over here, Jesus is over here. And we offer a fraudulent gospel to the people if we do not say, okay, you want to accept Jesus? You have to understand that repentance comes first. Why was it that John came before Jesus rather than after Jesus? Turn. And you see both here a turning. Apparently, many Israelites had turned away from the Lord their God. That's John's purpose. He's going to turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. And part of the outworking of that transformation in their hearts about God will be a transformation in their hearts and, and earthly relationships. He's talking about fathers being turned back to their children and, and uh, restoring relationships there. Now, this comes right out of Malachi chapter 4. Let me take you to the final verses of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Uh, you, You would have to be a Jew to appreciate how excited Zechariah got when he heard the words uh, from the angel that he heard. Because he and all of Israel in his day were... (laughs) In in their opinion, it was silent. God was not speaking. Malachi was the last Old Testament book written, and it was another 400 years until John the Baptist showed up on the scene. There were no prophets during that time. There was no scripture written. It's simply called by theologians the 400 years of silence. God's silent. God's not saying anything. Verses 5 and 6, Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah. Again, these are the closing words. Of the, la- of the Old Testament. I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. Now that phrase um, speaks about God's final judgment, but really speaks about a, also about a season leading up to God's final judgment. So he's going to send this prophet Elijah. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike a land with a curse. And you have to wonder, the people that heard this prophecy and then everything went silent from heaven had to be wondering for those hundreds of years, when's God God, God going to speak again? When's he going to come again? When's he going to minister to us again? When is he going to give us hope ever again? Well, John the Baptist is here and now there's hope. And it's interesting, despite his very blunt, very in-your-face message of repentance, people turned out to be baptized by him in droves, so hungry for the Word of God again in their lives. Now let me wrap up here with the final verses here in Luke 1. The earthly father's preoccupation. Beginning verse 67... Uh, Well, let's go to 68. Uh, We've read this. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He's been merciful to our ancestors by remembering the covenant, excuse me, by remembering his sacred covenant the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear 
in holiness, righteousness for as long as we live. Now he finally gets around to this little boy that has been born. Oh, you know, I missed all kinds of verses here, but we're out of time. Um, baby's been born, and, and he's rejoicing in this little boy named John. And you, my little son, he says in verse 76, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins because of God's tender mercy. The morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give, us, give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. I'm just, I'm intrigued. As a dad myself, I'm intrigued to see this man who had longed for a child of his own for so many years, finally has him, still has the eyes of heaven. He notes his son, and he's grateful for his son, but his great rejoicing is ultimately in God his Savior, who has come to deliver and redeem his people. There is a reason that Jesus says some things like, um, anyone who has left home or wife or children for my sake will be rewarded with even more wives, homes, children in the next age. Not speaking literally, but talking about the compensation that's coming. There's a reason that Jesus says things like, um, you want to follow me and serve me? You, you have to hate. It's like hate in comparison to all those other ones that you cherish so much. God doesn't, doesn't mean that we should abandon our children, that we should abandon our spouses. But what he says, there is a priority there. Do you love me most? Or do you love all the other people around you most? And I just think of what a tribute it was to Zachariah's God-centered heart that in the wake of the most cherished gift he had ever received, he still rejoices in God his Savior more than anything else, more than anything else. What a challenge to me. What a challenge to us. John's future would look a lot like Jesus in that he was really popular initially, but ultimately his true message would cost him his life. And that's, that's something that I think we desperately need to wrestle with. Are we going to do what is convenient and say what is convenient, what, do and say what will not um, get us negative attention, or will we do and say what God desires that we do and say? Maybe at the Christmas dinner table. Maybe with a friend. Maybe with a spouse. Maybe with our children. Are we willing to be who God wants us to be, say the hard things God wants us to say, come what may, no matter the price? Father, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for a man like John, and even John's dad, who had their eyes singled for your glory. Above all else, cherished, desired your plan to be fulfilled who saw the handwriting on the wall of, God's, uh, of your ongoing work of um, grace and judgment in the world. And we're so thrilled to see the fulfillment of the promise that you had made in covenant to your people from long ago. In Jesus' name.